Welcome to another episode of The Search for Growth with myself, Alfie Marsh, and my co-host, Chris Gibson. In today's episode, we're going to be breaking down some of the takeaways from Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Ultimately, there's a lot of cognitive science behind it and understanding the way humans think. And we're going to look at some of the practical applications that we can take away from this in the world of entrepreneurship. Um, just a, maybe a bit of background. I think, Chris, you've studied this for your core thesis. So John, what's your background to the book? You've read it a few years before I did. Yeah, yeah. So I was a cognitive science major at Dartmouth. And for our senior seminar, we studied this book. It's a very big book and it has a lot of takeaways, both for like real life, but also business. But I, we're not going to go into all the applications right now. I think we're just going to touch on a couple high level thoughts. I think like the basic understanding of what is this book why is it called Thinking Fast and Slow? It's called that because Daniel Kahneman goes into two systems, system one and system two. System one is when you're thinking fast. It's like the intuitive information that you get when you walk into a room without even thinking. There's no, there's no energy put into it. It just, you scan the room and you can detect who is friendly or who is hostile and you're not trying it, it's just automatic. System two, on the other hand, is more complex. It's like you're given some math problem and you have to take the time to work through it and figure out the answer. And there's this interesting interplay between the two systems. Like system two processes can be made into system one given enough time and energy. So Magnus Carlsen, when he's on a chess table, can, can look at the board and intuitively make very fast decisions at a very high competency rate level because he's done so much with chess. It's just intuitive at this point where if I were to sit down, even though I play a little bit of chess and a decent amount of chess, I don't have that competency or number of hours at the table. So I have to do a lot more system two thinking when I sit down and try to figure out what moves I need to play. So maybe another example would be like learning to drive a car for the first time would engage your system too. <clears throat> There's a lot of proactive thinking. You've not done this before. There's no kind of neural pathways already created. And so there's a, a lot of energy is expended in learning to drive and, and concentrating. Whereas once you've been driving for 10 plus years and you've been going to and through the, the work office every day, that process you can forget and zone out. You've even driven home because it's just so automatic. You don't have to think. And that's more system one thinking where you, there's a the promotion of what used to be system two now becomes system one. Is that an accurate understanding? Totally. Yeah, totally. You get into this flow state where you're just processing things very quickly without effort. One other thing to note about the difference. System one, it's very fast and it biases towards pleasant feelings, reduced vigilance. It's not something where there's a lot of doubt. So system two, on the other hand, Part of what makes it you able to deal with complex problems is that element of doubt. Can you handle multiple ideas at once? Can you process these multiple competing ideas? One may be more correct than the other, and you're really going through the analytical process of understanding a situation. While system one is basically, that's great. Also, if you think about like news, social media and news, when you see some headline of person and this actually just happened. Person dies in Golden Gate Park running because of a tree branch falling on them. That generates a lot of emotion and a very quick response. Um, so that's system one thinking of, whoa, it's dangerous out there. System two thinking is, okay, 
how many runners actually are die from tree branches in Golden Gate Park in a given period of time. And so it's not that much. It's not something that I should worry about that much. Getting to that second level of thinking, you have to know that you're biased to think a certain way. You need to make the leap into system two thinking. Does that make sense? Totally. And there's this concept that I've always talked about with my sales teams, which is around cognitive friction. So this is expressed a lot through when you're writing a cold email or writing marketing copy on your website. And the point I've always tried to make is you want to try and reduce cognitive friction so that it's easy for someone to digest and understand and take in what you're saying and get some sort of output or action. And things that may increase cognitive friction is any time that they have to think. And I've never really thought it historically between this kind of system one, system two, but maybe one example is if you're a, uh, a complete cold email, they want to be able to validate who's this company, are they worth my time speaking to? And so you can engage system one thinking by having social proof and these sorts of things because it engages that it's almost automatic. Oh, I trust them, therefore I trust this. Whereas if that is absent, it's going to create this cognitive friction where they feel like I have to evaluate this first before I reply. And therefore I'm going to engage my system two thinking, maybe click on their website, do X, Y, Z. So I think there's this difference of knowing when you're using your system one thinking and Daniel Kahneman talks a lot about in the book in various different ways of which we're going to discuss how, when we think under this easy, intuitive, fast mode of thinking, there are actually a lot of mistakes that don't make a lot of logical sense. But because it's cognitively easy to interpret, we don't necessarily think about it. So we might be making bad decisions, basically. And so what you mentioned is, okay, you, if you're aware of these differences or the ways that you know, our brain can play with us, then maybe we will try and engage that system to thinking more often to be able to identify them. But there's another perspective here, which is as an entrepreneur, as someone who's building products or someone who's selling products, understanding how your customers and your prospects are thinking and going to behave allows you to create experiences, processes, products, and marketing copy that is going to create less friction in that process or create a better experience or perceived experience for the prospect. Totally. So when you think about sales a lot, or whether it's while you're hiring or interviewing, a lot of it's just pattern match matching. People just want to know that you've checked that box. They don't need to do like a deep dive into your security systems or into your references. They just want to know that you have like references. You are a good person, like it's something pretty generic. This is a problem that I have when I was doing founder-led sales is um, I'm very much a system two type thinker where I'm like, I need to tell you analytically, like, this is all the things that will, we will do for you. These are our gaps. This is all the, like the bad stuff that we or not bad stuff, but like, this is the shit that we know are gaps in our product. When in reality, like a lot of sales is just, is it like going to do the job that ne needs to be done? Is it going to, we don't need to know every single button and everything that it does. Like we just need to know that it like generally solves what we do and it, it has references, people are willing to speak to it. We don't need to have this very detailed system two analysis of what, what you're offering. Ultimately, we are defining the system one, that fast thinking as heuristics. It's a, it's a shortcut, it's a mental shortcut to make a decision. Um, social proof was obviously just one of them that we mentioned. And where system two, again, is not the shortcut, it's the more 
processed, logical, pragmatic, thought out. What's maybe interesting is as our human species, we didn't, all this system two thinking happens in the prefrontal cortex, if I understand correctly, of which wasn't really developed until a lot later in our evolution. So this system one thinking, not only is it fast, intuitive, quick, and in terms of the order of events, it's also what's been ingrained in our species for you know, tens of thousands of years. And we've only really developed this system two thinking more recently. Yeah, totally. And a couple things to be aware of. If system one is what you're saying is more of our animal brain, it is what triggers like our fight or flight response, like things that we're not thinking about, we just intuit. System two requires energy and effort. It's something that also changes over time. If you're in conflict with somebody and you have had a stressful day and you haven't eaten anything, the willpower that it takes to be thoughtful about how you respond to someone, it's sometimes hard to get that because your system two capability is so much less that you're going to revert to a system one, like potentially more aggressive or intuitive way of responding versus something that's more carefully thought out. The side digression, but a great book that kind of talks about the more human interaction of this system one, system two thinking is The Chimp Paradox. Have you read this book? I have not. I think you'd enjoy it. You'd understand most of it, I think, quite intuitively, but it's more from the context of how humans are interacting with one another rather than Daniel Kahneman's is very much, here's the heuristic, here's why it doesn't work, and here's <laughs> how to leverage it. Okay, great. So we've got a basic understanding of system one, system two thinking, the fast thinking brain, the slow thinking brain. And as we said, these are heuristics and the fast thinking brain that sometimes don't always work well. And so they either can be manipulated or misused or misinterpreted to create certain outcomes. One of the chapters in the book is about framing and the framing heuristic. Um, so do you want to give a little bit of an overview of this? And we can give some examples in practical terms, how framing can be leveraged or, or applied in the real world. Yeah. One thing that I want to chat about is narrow framing versus broad framing. Narrow framing is when you focus on details at the expense of the big picture. And broad framing is when you like look at the big picture. If you think about narrow versus broad, narrow framing is like system one thinking. You make a decision as a one-off. You're not comparing it to anything else. You're just like, it's your gut. And broad framing is when you are like taking a step back, thinking about the different ways of evaluating this in like an analytical way. So system one is that narrow framing. It doesn't consider the global set of possibilities. So what does this look like in reality? Think about if you have a nonprofit that reduces in plastic in the ocean to avoid poisoning and killing baby dolphins. How much do you think you're willing to donate to support that cause? Uh, potentially a lot, like on the higher end of things, if you were just given this as a one-off. Baby dolphins are cute. They tug at your emotional heartstrings. Obviously, we want to save baby dolphins. What about if there's like a nonprofit that helps farmers with skincare because farmers are out in the sun all the time and they get cancer a bunch. Typically, you look at that and you're like, I don't, they're humans like dealing with skincare stuff. Like I, there's not as much of an emotional connection to that second situation. And both of those responses independently are very narrow ways of framing it. But then if I were to ask you, okay, you have the option of donating to a dolphin saving nonprofit or a human cancer reducing nonprofit. You probably think, okay, I have these two options. It makes way more sense to give to a human cancer reducing nonprofit because 
like the scale of it's a lot larger. Dolphins are just not as core to human experience that cancer will have a much greater impact on the world. And so that latter situation where you're comparing the two next to each other is that broad framing of evaluating the different options, making sure that you are making the correct analytical decision. Does that make sense? Yeah, hundred percent. One of the ways I think of this is looking at life experience, right? So we've obviously, I'm 31 years old. I've got 31 years of life experience. That's quite a long time. I obviously know my life experience in a lot of detail and have very close proximity to my experiences. My experiences with interacting with people in the working environment, whatever it may be, I have got my perspectives on that, right? And each individual person also has theirs. And so we tend to give a lot of weight to our own personal experiences understandably but this is a narrow framing when you actually think of all the people that have been alive i don't know the exact thing i think it's like 117 billion people over the course of x period of time and our individual life experience compared to everybody else's is so tiny that to look at only your life experience as a guide on how to live life or to take learnings from is a very small data set and hence why, I don't know if you're the same, but for me personally, it's why I love reading books or consuming other content, speaking with other people, because I'm trying to enlarge that data set outside of my own life experiences, because I know I might be biased. One example of this is Spendesk for most of the years has been building an outbound sales team. So I've got all these thoughts of what's the best way to create a billion dollar company and build a sales motion around that. But that's one experience. When you then go and do consulting work, you work with five, 10, 20, 50 companies, you start broadening that narrow view into a larger view and you start taking in more data points. Yeah, totally. I think if you think about how many people follow career paths that their parents go into, it's intuitively, I think it's very high. I don't have the data behind me, but it seems high. And my guess is it's high because people know what that career path is like, what success looks like in that career path, their experience of what it means to be successful is such a narrow understanding that all these other careers out there that may be perfect for them are really hard to get into or for them to even attempt because they have such a clear path for what success looks like. And we're dancing around this concept of the availability heuristic which is mm. the process of judging frequency by the ease with which instances come to mind. And the availability heuristic is makes sense in this framing contest text that you're talking about in a personal life where you're only going to be able to generate memories and generate knowledge about your own life experiences. You're not going to mm. be able to for other life experiences. So you're going to be biased towards things that you've experienced. Totally. I've got a couple of examples of the framing effect. I think like some practical applications of that. I don't know if you want to jump to some of yours first, or there's other context that you think is worth giving. I think one, one example is say you're a leader of a department at a company and you are compensated based on your project success. You may be risk averse because your compensation is based on your project success, but the CEO may look at in aggregate, all of the projects and say, we want to have a risk-taking atmosphere because we know that taking 10 shots at goal is going to lead 
have a way higher aggregate outcome than individuals cases. Also, like if your project is failing and you know that there is some moonshot opportunity that is very resource intensive, you may want to take that moonshot opportunity in order to get it into the black, but your CEO may look at that situation and actually prefer you not do that because resources could be better spent in aggregate across the higher performing projects. This is very much still from the, the narrow to the wider perspective yeah. of how decisions are made. Yeah, totally. I always try and speak about that with people in my team. There's, we, especially when you go from like an individual contrib contributor role to manager or an executive, you're often, like you said, focusing on what you do well in your job, but to be respected at a higher level with the executive team, you have to be able to say not only know your job inside out and what's the right decisions there but put that in the context of the wider company like you said it can be really frustrating if you work really hard you take a big bet and then it gets canned and cancelled because this investment needs to go elsewhere but what you need to be more cognizant of is the wider decisions and how you can add value to higher up in the company totally all right. There was one looking at framing. So we've also looked at like narrow versus the wider view, but there's other ways to frame things. Ultimately framing the framing effect is there are multiple perspectives of the same factual piece of information. And depending on which one you choose to focus on, will draw a different conclusion. Given a very specific example, let's say France and Italy play each other in the world cup and one of those teams win. Let's say France wins. You can either say France has won the World Cup or you could say Italy has lost the World Cup. You know, factually, they're both the same things, but they are focusing on a different outcome. And this is what we see all the time in the news when a particular story, the facts may all be laid out the same, but whatever is presented can frame the situation in a certain way. Another common example, I think, is in marketing, let's say, you have a yogurt and you can say it's either 80% fat free or there's 20% fat. So whether you're focusing on the absence of the fat or you're focusing on the presence of the fat, it can give a very different connotation as to the interpretation. Yeah. One thing I want to clarify, you made it the statement that France lost and Italy won are factually the same statements. Actually, logically, they're different. Italy lost means that there could be a lot of other teams that won. France won means they're the only ones that won. Yeah, if you're talking about the whole tournament, yeah, yeah, yeah. but if you're referring just to the final, the specific could game, yes, two outcomes. Totally. Again, it's a very good point because if you don't specify that that thing, then you're just like, well, Italy lost. So did all you know the other hundred yeah. teams. And so again, it's what are you focusing on? Like, why are you saying Italy lost rather than why didn't you say Greece lost because they also technically lost as well? So. Again, it's really just drawing the light. And in the same way, we have framing in the same way that at this moment in time, you know, I'm facing a window, I've got two lights shining on me, there's maybe depth of field in between me and the wall. If I put my head in between the picture frames and the mirror, it's going to create more of a frame. And that draws focus. So basically, the frame is all about drawing focus on a particular aspect of something. And this can be leveraged in many different ways. So I think just the most simple thing is to be aware of how you're framing something is super important and say, is the way I'm describing this, drawing the focus on the thing that I want to be noticed? I think that's something that when I was doing sales at Wavelength, it really matters. Like you have this 
blank canvas in which you can position your company in any way that you want. You can, mm. there is a suite of features and tools and like we had email, we had networking, we had data tools, we had all these things and any one of them, we could position ourselves in that way and speak to a customer. And so we had to identify, okay, which was the framing that converted most prospects into customers. And that for us was like data because we were able to be 10 X better than everybody else in the data department in the other departments. Like maybe we're more similar to them, but because we were framing the situation about, we will get you better data and the system to thinking, we have them thinking about, okay, data versus any of the other suite of tools and features that they could be asking about. So effectively, in terms of positioning, the way you want to draw the focus is on where is your particular strength or unique selling point. I give you an example at Spendesk, again, spend management, corporate cards and expense claims and that sort of thing. If we started comparing ourselves to like a corporate card or a credit card, that framing puts you in the direct light next to other credit cards. And we were a debit card. We didn't have a credit. We didn't do points and all these things. So if I'm looking at Spendless within the frame of a credit, I'm going to look at that and say, hang on, you have all these points missing. And actually, if we take that away and say, okay, we don't want to be benchmarked against that. So the framing or positioning is not, is not effective. Whereas what we can do is focus on position spend management, and then we can then define what spend management means. It's more the operation and the process behind a payment at work. And therefore you can then say, actually, take a look at a credit card. We're not like a credit card because these things don't have all the processes behind it. They may have points, but they don't have these processes. And this is what we do. And you're like, oh, okay, I get that. It's a framing which makes a lot more sense. In another example, previously where I worked at Bloomberg, they have this, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but their terminal, which has a bunch of financial data, stocks, bonds, everything else, they have one fixed pricing for the entire year. It's about $24,000 for one user license. So it's like one seat in mm -hmm. SAS terms. That's, uh, that's an expensive seat. And what's interesting about their model, it's all you can eat. So you can't compartmentalize part of the platform and just take the chat option, which for example, a lot of traders just use. You can't take this equity analysis and buy that separately because maybe you're a fixed income trader, you want something else. You can't do that. You have to just pay the whole amount and everything. And the department that I worked in was the electronic trading platform. So it was just to help people actually buy and sell these things. And what was interesting is technically it was free that like we didn't charge. It was almost like a separate product. It had a whole separate support team, but we didn't charge any extra for it. And so there was always this debate as to, <clears throat> or it wasn't much of a debate. There was very clear guidelines as to when we communicate with customers about saying whether it's free or it's included in the price. And the point being, they made us say it's included in the price because if you say free, it is so a free is associated with either a lack of value or if you're giving something away from free, how can it be effective? And so saying included in the price is almost like, yeah, you can get that included. It's a bargain. It's something on top. <laughs> and it's just that small framing that we're putting around it changes the interpretation. Totally. So when you sell software, if you're selling just directly to one customer, from an outbound email or something, you have a very narrow frame with which you have to sell to them. Like they're not evaluating other competitors. It's a more intuitive emotion-based, does this solve this job to be done for us? Which is different than if you are selling 
to someone who is evaluating competitors at the same time, going through a formal process, that is way more system two broad framing situation where you have to come up with answers to how your competitors are pitching themselves. I get your point. Get your point. And uh, it's interesting, maybe like the B2C world is more system one thinking because it tends to be that when you look at B2C marketing versus B2B, B2C is often a lot more playing on emotions of an individual person. It's a lot more on the kind of psychographic elements as opposed to things which are more firmographic in B2B. And so the default in B2B is to try and lean into that system two thinking. And that's the kind of path of least resistance maybe. But the lesson maybe here is, even within each one of those individual decisions in a B2B process, there is still going to be system one thinking. For example, I'm not a decision maker. Should I introduce you to my boss? I'm going to make a lot of system fast decisions as to whether I trust you. Are you going to sell something that I don't approve of? Is your product going to be a risk and all these sorts of things? And we can mitigate a lot of these things by saying, okay, be aware of how people judge or perceive risk and create processes around that to mitigate that in the case of a KDM, a key decision maker, maybe we want to focus on selling the point that without them in the process, it's actually a lot higher risk. And so you bring down that system one kind of a fight or flight. I think that point about B2C is way more system one and B2B is more system two makes so much sense. I hadn't thought of that previously. Like TikTok, you're not sitting down and evaluating what are the pros and cons of me? I like this video. I'm going to put it on my phone, whatever. Most people aren't going through that complex decision-making system, which I think probably is also why social media companies, they're so, it's a tough spot where you, people get polarized and I, we've just been led down this path of polarization and emotion driven content because at every decision-making point, it's more of a system one thought process than a system two thought process. Yeah, hundred percent. And what's, I think difficult, what's difficult in the business world around leveraging these system one, system two frames is I gave the example, 80% fat free or 20% fat in a yogurt. And that's very black or white. It's a binary. There's two options that you can focus on, but the reality is, especially if you're talking about like a product, there are so many different, um, like gray areas in which you could focus on a little bit here, a little bit of there. And it's about choosing the right variables. One example would be, let's take Starbucks. Starbucks could be seen as a really expensive coffee. It's like a $5 coffee. And if I was to compare that to making coffee at home for let's say 50 cent, that's like a 10x markup. And so if I use that as my focus point, I'm going to say, is the value of me buying Starbucks worth 10x the experience that I have at home? And through that lens, I'd probably say, no, it's probably not. However, there are elements in which Starbucks could position themselves. For example, a lot of people use Starbucks for their Wi-Fi and they go and work there. Now, if I say, okay, Starbucks is a super cheap place to have an office for the day, where you have a free coffee effectively, or you, or you pay for a coffee and you get a free office for the day compared to thousand dollars a month for a WeWork in, in San Francisco. When you frame it like that, it's like, wow, yeah, Starbucks is a pretty good value for money. That really, isn't it? And so it's, again, that's one aspect, but this happens all throughout the kind of buying experience. When you get your customers for the first time, I've noticed this a lot with founders that I speak with. Um, 
they often think about sales as I've got a product, I need to sell it, I need to talk about how great it is and try and get customers by selling that. And it's actually really hard in the early days because you don't actually know how to communicate with them. You don't know how to communicate what your value propositions are yet because you don't really know. You don't know who your ideal customer profile is. So you, you can't pinpoint these people. So that, that approach doesn't work very well. And so instead of trying to position your email as, hey, here's a problem you might have that I don't know. We have this solution that might work. Should we join join us see if it works for you? Position it as, hey, I'm building this product. For these reasons, I think you might be a good fit. I'd love to have a conversation with you to get some expert advice on our product vision and get your input. You're just framing the conversation as two different things. It's like an expert interview versus a sales call. But ultimately, they're the same thing. You're going to have, an, you're, you're going to have a conversation. That conversation is going to lead to you discovering whether they have a pain or not. And if they do have a pain, you can then position your product. And if they don't have a pain, then happy days, you've learned some stuff and you call it a day. But that's basically what would happen on the sales call anyway. The only difference is people are way more likely to take a call with you to give you their expert advice and kind of their thoughts on something than they are to take a sales call. And so again, it's just framing, but there's so many options and there's creative ways that you can cast a light on something you just got to see it appear in your day-to-day and leverage it yeah we could chat about this for a while i feel like framing is such a it's like the key component to communication (laughs) and whether it's when you're hiring or selling or the more that i exist in this world the more that i think that we're just constantly selling ourselves and our brand in very micro ways throughout the day. And framing is like a key component of that. Sales is life, bro. Sales is life. You got a leg up there. What is it Naval Ravikant says? He says, if you can build and you can sell, then you're unstoppable. So got to get both. There is one last thing on the framing side as an example that I found quite useful and I'd like to talk about. But before I go into that, are there examples or things that you want to talk about from your notes we haven't yet gone through? I guess there's one random. Have you seen the gorilla video where there's you're shown a video and you're asked how many passes do the basketball players make? And you're so focused on do you know what I'm talking about before I go yeah. into it? So, but I mean yeah. explain it for the audience. But yeah, 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 yeah. Basically there's this video about basketball players that pass the ball around and you have to count how many times the basketball gets passed. And it's like a 30 second video and you do that and you have some number at the end and you're like so confident about it. And then they ask you, did you see the gorilla that walks right through the video? And you don't because your system two thinking is so focused on counting how many passes there are that something that passes right in front of you, you don't even recognize it. And then you go back and rewatch this video and there's this gorilla that is very clearly walking in front of players that you just saw pass the ball and you're totally blind to it. And so I think when we're talking about framing and system one, system two thinking, it's really important to focus on where there are these gaps in your mental processing that you're not even aware of that 
had you been aware of these gaps, you would be more effective in your day-to-day job or how you communicate. It's a bit like a magician who's spinning around a wand in one hand and they'd like moving the ball under the cup in the other one, but there's no magic there. It's just, it's a distraction towards one thing, but it's, it's interesting. If I was from the perspective of a buyer chatting to a sales guy, I would be like, I want to focus on things I want to focus on, not just the spinning yep. magic wand that you're putting in front of me. All right, look, one last point then, and then we'll wrap up for the day. The... This is, he does, Daniel Kahneman talks about kind of loss aversion as another heuristic book. But I do think that there is a strong overlap with framing in the sense that effectively we are, as humans, we much prefer to opt for a zero risk option. So if I was to say to you, maybe not you, because you're actually quite a system two thinker, but if you were humble system one thinker, Chris, and I said to you, you have two options, you can either have a... 10 pounds or a $10 note guaranteed hundred percent, or you can take a 50, 50 chance and win $30. The rational answer would be to take the 50, 50 chance on $30 because the expected value would be 50% of 30 equals $15, which is more than $10. So that's the rational view. And if you did system two thinking, you would, you should logically choose that. Whereas most people would tend to choose the first one because it's a guaranteed win. And so what we're trying to do is reduce uncertainty to zero, even if the outcome is the less ideal one. Firstly, I'll just pause there. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I feel like it goes back to our poker probability episode and expected value. I am curious whether there's any logical argument ever to taking the sure bet or in every single situation, should you always take the highest expected value? Outcome. Well, for sure. Of course. Let's say if you're a doctor and there's a, a certain percent you're chance right. of like total death, then yeah. But this is, no, I think, is it no, the black swan guy, he talks about this as why catastrophizing events that have a 0.001% chance of being right. But if they do happen, they'll wipe the world off. People give them so much attention, but they shouldn't. But at the end of the day, it's very hard to say something with such catastrophic events should be ignored. So maybe, yeah, there are examples. But the point I was going to make here, what, how is this? So I was speaking to a founder friend, recently launched a company, a couple of weeks ago and he's in the process of onboarding first customers and they basically they have a really good fit on a niche part of this product and but their competitor who's bigger and more well-funded is crappy on this particular aspect which is my friend's usp but they have this whole suite of other stuff so they're like jack of all trades master of none and he's mastering one and the conversation he had with this prospective customer was effectively, yes, what you do now is really good, but in the future, I may have this problem, I may have that problem. And I know that this competitor is, is going to solve those things, even if they're not great. Like, why should I go with you? And it got me thinking, a lot of the time, um, people, firstly, people think that competition is the biggest competition, but actually staying with the status quo is often the biggest competition. Staying with the status quo is your way of what is perceived to be eliminating risk. And so actually the expected value is lower maybe, but because you know it, you feel more comfortable with it. So people, it's very hard to move people into action. And so positioning, if you reposition the status quo as not a guaranteed kind of win, but it's a guaranteed loss, that is the risk. You actually know already that this is not working for you. So that's a hundred percent guaranteed loss if you stay that way. If you come with me or my product or service, there is a probability that you're going to have a good outcome. And so if you frame this as, okay, the cost is you have a monthly access to the product. It's pretty low barrier to entry. You can leave at any time. 
the cost of trying something else new for a better outcome is worth it because otherwise you're going to be guaranteed with this loss. And again, it's framing, but at the same time, this heuristic of loss aversion mixed into one. And so as a salesperson or a marketer, you have to sell that. You have to sell the problem with staying with the status quo. Yeah, the status quo. I think when I first started Wavelength, I didn't realize how hard it is to change people's behavior and how hard it is to change people from what they're doing. Like changing behavior, people are so used to doing one specific thing and changing processes or like learning a new system. That takes effort and is hard to do. And it, there's an unknown element and all those things, even if you have an amazing product are just like the table stakes that you have to deal with when selling software. And in some software, it's easier to do sell to than others. People that are early adopters in technology, selling software to them is going to be a lot easier because they're willing to take those risks. They, those table stakes are a lot lower, but in a place like a school that the biggest risk to them is like brand degradation or like me messing up their relationship with alumni, that risk of newness is a lot higher, perceived a lot higher. So the table stakes are just totally different. Um, mm. And so trying to evaluate, okay, what is the situation that I'm in, in my company is in, what are these underlying currents that I have to deal with? And are you able to change the framing such that it is the danger of staying with the status quo is so significant that actually changing software, changing behavior, even though it's risky, even though there's unknowns is way more of a beneficial future. That, that's the logical structure that you have to get them to. Yeah. You're not selling the infinite potential opportunity. You're actually selling the guaranteed prevention of loss is yeah. a simplified way of saying that. Also, like you said, I mean, there's a million one examples we could go through. To summarize, there is system one and system two thinking. System one is fast, intuitive, reflexive. It's your animalistic brain. System two is slow. It's your prefrontal cortex. It's the logical pragmatic. It's the calculating part of the brain. System one thinking, that fast thinking has a lot of heuristics that we rely on to understand the world through of which many can lead us to somewhat illogical assumptions or outcomes. And if we can learn what these are, we can then leverage them within our processes, sales, marketing, building a product and so on and so forth. With that being said, is there anything you'd like to say to, to wrap up the pod, Chris? I would just say, uh, check out Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman's great book. It is large. It does seem daunting. We will probably refer to it in, in another episode. It is a good thing to reference every once in a while. And you can read chapters at a time. It's not something that you have to read all in one go, but it is super valuable and it will change how you think about decision-making. Absolutely. All right. Where can people find us? We've got the content I consume newsletter, which is your weekly newsletter on literally that content you consume. So where can they find you? What do they need to type in? Yeah. LinkedIn is great. Chris Gibson. You also, the search for growth.com has all of our information there. And then your newsletter, rocket GTM and your LinkedIn and your consulting services. Yeah, all these links will be in the in the description below. If you are listening to this and you are not subscribed, hit the subscribe button, the follow button on on LinkedIn, subscribe to the YouTube, whatever you are, get notifications of uh, the next time we're out and help spread the word of this young growing podcast. Thanks very much, everyone. Thanks. See you next week. Bye.